Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We do this every day. I'm Pat Mulroy, the supervisor of the World of Learning Institute. The World of Learning Institute provides virtual instruction in languages and courses like calculus and chemistry when it's difficult for a school or a district to find a teacher. We're here to talk to you today about what we do every day, which is try to make virtual learning authentic, relevant, and engaging. If you'd like to know more about what we do or talk about our services, you can call call me or you can email me at pmulroy at worldoflearninginstitute.com. And today I have Olivia with me to kick off um, our second episode of our second season. So this is pretty special. Um, and it's always like really cool. Um, one of the things I've found fun about this is like, you know, you don't realize maybe who's listening to it, even though you get data and stuff like that about your podcast, but somebody say, Oh, I loved that part, you know? And, um, today we're going to talk a little bit about, um, support and advocacy and, um, how do we make the decisions about what's important to support and how do we make decisions, Olivia, that are important in what we change in our courses and who gives us that feedback and why do we make those changes? Because you did a lot of that this summer, right? So um, welcome back, Olivia, season two. Thanks, Pat. Two, two. Two, like two. It. Here we are. So what have you been up to? Oh, it's such a whirlwind. I'm sure that every school leader, teacher, parent, child feels that this at the start of the school year, but we are, you know, September is coming to a close. Um, and so there is a little opportunity here to reflect. I think we are, we made it through September. Right. Um, and we at the world of learning, you know, as many of our listeners know, there are four of us that are sort of in the, on the leadership team, the, at least the immediate leadership team, right. Supported by the, the infrastructure of the IU and, we've kind of shifted into our places, sometimes places of comfort, sometimes discomfort, but right. mine has, mine has shifted over the, this is my fourth year, starting my fourth year. Um, and I'm finding myself at the start of the year, spending most of my time in communication with teachers, which I really love our teachers, um, and working on courses. And those two things are like closely related, right? The teachers are the ones yeah. who are teaching the courses. And so it makes sense to have that person that's communicating with them to also be in the back end kind of helping navigate and organize the course structure right so I've been thinking about a lot like how I yeah my priorities and where the most um, impact is for our students as well as all the other stakeholders um because there's always more than you there's always more you could do than the hours that you have right, right. I don't know anybody Absolutely. who's in education who doesn't feel that so I think like in life like you know you want to yeah. get a better dinner on the table some days and it's like mm, ran out of time yeah well, and that's no okay. like, tonight that's... right or no extra yeah. vegetable whatever you know like <laughs> that's sure, kind of I'm how sure I feel my family's been feeling that at the start of the year too <laughs> um yeah so it's just like not just because we will have to, we won't be able to do everything that we'd like to in a day doesn't mean that we can't be intentional about which things we're doing. Right. Um, and from like a support and advocacy standpoint, like if my job is to support the teachers so that they can be the best teachers for students, right? Like at the end of the day, it's about the students. Then that's how I should be measuring like the amount of effort I'm putting in the impact it has for teachers. And so it brought me back to this um, matrix that Jennifer Anderson from the IU shared with us. I had an opportunity to work with her last spring. 
And she shared this and I was like, Dan, what a powerful tool. Like every once in a while, somebody shows you a real simple, yeah. like often X, Y kind of, you know, thing that you can apply to gosh, any part of your life. But I know you can share this visual yeah, absolutely. with listeners, put it, Pat. Put it in our show notes. Yep, absolutely. But just imagine like effort along the X axis, right? From low, low to high effort and then impact along the Y going up and down. And you just find yourself in these different quadrants. One you can imagine is low effort and low impact. So, you know, there are little projects that take you five minutes. It's not going to change anybody's life, but you like check it off the list, clean something up. Jen Anderson called those the low lying fruit. And I think the general advice is like, yeah, do those things. Now, I mean, sometimes you can get too many of them on your plate. And if you let them go for a minute, they're probably going to be fine. You could probably even let them go completely and they'll be forgotten about because they're a low impact. So somebody else will address it or it'll go unaddressed. But if you can do them, you do them because it's low lying fruit. It's a quick win. Somebody emails you and says, hey, can you help me with this broken link? Or um, can you make sure I'm spelling this kid's name right? Or And it's like, yep, real quick, I can go do that. Could they do it themselves? Maybe, but I can do it for them. It doesn't matter, right? Um, but then you can imagine like also on the low impact side of things, but if you move along the x-axis, there's high effort, low impact. And those are the ones that you are like not supposed to do. Like <laughs> identify those, name them and don't do them. Like if there's high effort and the impact is low, it's not about like, oh, I'll do that later. Don't do it. Like if you have too many, if you don't have enough hours in the day, that's the one to take off your list, right? Right, but you know what? Like- I'm going to like just push back on that one a little bit because like there might be those like kinds of sacred cow moments or like sacred cow courses or whatever, right? Mm. That are like, we've always had this course. I mean, we deal with that sometimes with districts when they have to like say, listen, we're not going to offer this language anymore because it's, you know, we, we get we low, low membership, right? And so to take their funds sometimes and put it towards the teacher is like you know it's it's high effort and it's high impact because there is an impact like people are really you know what I mean like well that's what I was gonna say like people will frame that like in the numbers game you say oh we only have two kids who are gonna take latin four so you're like, oh, we're just going to nix it because it's a high effort to put together that course and it's a low impact because it's two kids. But I think you would push back on that and I will too and say like, no, if there's one student who wants to take that language, it is high impact for them. Right. Right. And it is high effort. And those are, that's that one, that is a quadrant too, right? High impact, high effort. And those get labeled your long-term projects. That's a long-term project, like building out Latin four, even if a couple of students are going to take it, there's right. no doubt a long-term project. And we don't sell it as anything, like we wouldn't pitch it as something less than that. Like, oh yeah, we'll just pull together Latin four. Like, no, that's a big project. Somebody's going to put a lot of time into that. But we know that the impact for the students who want to go through who are like serious about Latin, maybe they want to major it in college. Right. That could be the whole difference between them being able to pursue that in the future and not, right? Yeah. The high effort, low impact. I mean, I think about sometimes, and you know, I get a lot of pushback from this, but um, like sometimes in the academic world and being an athlete, I just think about the amount of time we put into um, athletics, you know, so super high effort. And I don't know that it's low impact, but I feel like it's not academic impact all the time. 
Um, right. And I sometimes like, you know, like when you think about priorities, like I think there's definitely, you know, a value to sport and things like that. But right. I wonder in the academic, like, you know, like I kind of get caught up in the idea that, you know, you spend a million dollars on a turf field. And, mm. you know, there's there's like resources, like maybe those kids who want to take a course that we don't offer or doesn't get offered mm. in a school or a school district. I think, you know, I don't know. So I guess like this matrix, you probably have to be careful and ask. It could be abused, right? Like you have to say who is the impact for. Right, right? exactly. And so is it impact on you as an administrator? Often not. Like it's not necessarily, although sometimes like we added genius, which I know you guys talked about last week, we added student information system this year right. and that's high effort. And the impact is on us. Like we are the ones, and yes, our students and our districts indirectly are going to benefit from it, but we did put the effort in that because we saw that we needed better data, right? right. Which ultimately is going to help them. But I think most of the time you're putting in the effort and the impact as an administrator, as a leader is not necessarily on you. It's on your teachers or on your students. And so if you get caught in the numbers game of like how many yeah. kids are going to benefit from this, you might to see it as a low impact. But like, if you think from the perspective of that one kid, right. Who, right. who wants to play that sport or who wants to learn that language or whatever. Right. Um, you know, and how do we make that keep, like, for me, like, I think about this in like the bigger, um, framework like you know like we just changed our courses up a little bit right I mean I feel like that was high effort where do you feel like the impact fell on that I mean we had um I mean we changed every single homepage, right mm -hmm. so I guess the date like we did take data in order to make those decisions and so I think that does give us a baseline mm -hmm. and I haven't said this or even thought this before, but now that you and I are talking about it, I wonder if we need to take that same survey, really like the same words that we use, the same questions that we asked from last year and around the same time, like it needs, the kids have to have some months in the course. Right? Yeah, right. They need a little um, bit of effort in it. Cause I think we gave it to them in the spring last year. And from what I recall, we put the survey out to over a thousand students. I think 400 responded and it wasn't a super short survey. So that was a pretty good response. I don't know what's a typical response rate, but we had 400 data points from different kids about how they navigate the homepage, which buttons they click on, how they get to their teacher's information, et cetera, et cetera. So right. I wonder if we couldn't put that out to kids again this year. Obviously there'd be some new variables and be different kids and all that, but kind of see how they're navigating this new homepage um, so that it's not just us speculating. I mean, I hope it's worth the effort. Right. Like, well, I mean, and, and we do ask for feedback, you know, so, you know, we sent stuff out to districts and like, sometimes I cringe when like, it's like, oh, well, if you want feedback, here you go. And it's like, yeah, you know, there's that like, oh yeah, I do want it. And oh, my heart's sinking because it's only September. And, you know, I don't know how much, you know, I mean, obviously there's always small little things that you can do to change when, you know, kids either don't feel challenged or sometimes they feel too challenged. Right. I mean, we've had both of right. those issues in the beginning, like, so that we have some kids who don't feel challenged enough. And then we have kids that are like, wait, my teacher's speaking the language too much, it's scaring me, you know? Well, maybe we could take that feedback from districts and almost put it on this matrix too, because I think like, if a, if a school's like, hey, this kid is struggling, like we, we address that right away, right? That's right. not a long-term project. No. Um, but if they're like, hey, here's a general suggestion for how you could edit your courses. Well, for them, they may be thinking about one course, but I'm thinking about 
we have 35 source courses and 115 copies of courses that are live this year. Right. So that's high impact. If you want to change even a, you want to change a spelling mistake in a course, not sorry, not high impact. It's high effort. Right, right, it's high right. effort yeah. to change anything in 115 courses. So I really have to ask myself, like, what's the impact, right? Right. If it's if students need something to have it changed, we're going to change it, right? Right. Um. But yeah, we're we're four full time people, so we have to see like which ones we're going to prioritize. But I think the feedback could be collected and saved almost in a matrix where you determine which things you're going right. to tackle first. Well. And I think that priority matrix, you know, it is a priority matrix in that regard, you know, like, um, and I think for us, you know, I like that we have this like continuous cycle of improvement. Like, you know, we don't change everything in a course necessarily like the first, the first time we hear feedback about it, you know, oftentimes like, you know, we, what did we use? We used, um, uh, what standards were that? You just told me them yesterday when we were talking about quality matters. Yeah, the quality matters standards. And I mean, what do we do that like three years ago when you it was probably, probably pretty shortly after you came on board and we yeah. wanted to like really look at, you know, are our courses, you know, meeting the high quality standards for virtual learning? And um, and I think, you know, we took a hard look at it. We We spent a couple of months looking at the standards and the different components of our courses. And I think from that, you know, that's that's where we started to ask the questions, right? Oh yeah, I think a lot of the changes came out of that. And I mean, I know Mike, like Aaron and Lauren are working on a presentation that we're gonna do at a couple of conferences about how our homepage has evolved. And that's where we put a lot of effort recently because the homepage is like the door into your house. Like if people can't get through the front door, if it's locked, it doesn't matter what's inside, right? And now I think like, the inside we're always working on. Um, and we have some brand new courses that are being built. And then we have others that need revised. And we've talked about that a lot, like getting into a curriculum cycle, which I know a lot of districts do. And sometimes those cycles are around funding. And, you know, maybe it's not so much about funding as much as it is um, capacity that we have with our teachers, but like, which of our courses. So I think, I, you know, I hope that I'm sure our homepage can keep being improved, but I hope that we can live with it for maybe, maybe a year. A little or two. bit. Yeah. A little um, bit. Cause now I'm like, okay, the door's unlocked. I think kids are getting like, I think we got that. Like, right. you know, could it be improved? Sure. But like, let's get inside the house a little bit more and let's get a little more nitty gritty. And we're doing that, you know, across the different languages to different degrees. We've talked about doing it more with Japanese and doing it more right. with German. So. Well, um, and I just, I think about the conversation we had just around, you know, the one school district where it's a semester course and we haven't necessarily done a whole lot to create that you know, where a student's going to be in, in their classroom for, you know, 90 minutes. And right. so they're, it's a different model. yeah, they're still going to go at a faster pace, but you know, what's, what are the ways that we could keep them more engaged? You know, is it, is it that there's some videos? Is it a, is it a novel? Is it reading a novel and then following up and watching the video in the, in the language, you know, like what are the ways that, you know, like we can make that high impact, low effort, right? Because we can't change the whole course midstream. I mean, right. I mean, obviously, I think, 
Yeah, that's, I think that one's right. You're right. That's a high impact. We're not re. There are some courses that we're rewriting. Those are our long term projects. Right, Those are high and they're impact, that high impact, high effort. high effort. But this is more like let's make it work for this group this year. Right, and and I think that's really what you know. There's a lot of that I think that happens. Like you know, I think as we were thinking and considering some of this, um, we were talking about how teachers can kind of do that when you're in a brick and mortar setting, but in the virtual setting, sometimes you really you can't you know, kind of look over the shoulder of a kid on the days you're not in the classroom with them because you're just not there. And, you know, so you can't say, hmm, you know, what else could I do for this child and and slide, you know, oh, you know what, here's a book you could read, right? Or, or you know, here here's a video, grab this iPad and I think this video would really relate to you. Throw your headset in and listen to this video or whatever. Um, you know, so those enrichment activities that um, you know, kind of teachers do on the fly because they know what they're doing and they're, you know, they see the kid's facial expression, they can see their shoulders slumping, they can see that they're maybe shopping online instead of doing what they're supposed to be doing, whatever. Um, so I think they're the kinds of things that, you know, we need the feedback of other people, you know, so we need those facilitators in the classroom to say this is happening and, and sometimes that's hard. Um, and, and it's hard to, um, I don't know, like, I don't want my teachers judged. Like I get protective. Well, but I think, like you said, it's not always about the teacher, like the right. modality of the hybrid course that's synchronous, asynchronous, and has an in-person facilitator, which is right. just really a unique modality, has opportunities, but it is different than our teachers are not, they are the teacher of record and they're not with the kids five days a week. So they don't have as many like informal data points on the kids, right? right? Um, they don't know who's sleepy that morning or who walked in late or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. So communication, like communication, I mean, it's just, you know, and it goes better with some places and others. And some people have more time to communicate than others. But like, um, you know, I think the key is not like, not it's not going to be perfect. We're at the start of the year. We're finding out at the beginning. Everybody's just trying to get started. So you don't right. really hear about any issues. Now we start to hear like, okay, this is a challenge. That's a challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think this is that time to come back and identify. It's even helping me that we did this just now, like identify, all right, in my head, I get the difference here between a brand new course that we're building or a brand new program that we're trying, like we're doing chemistry for the first time, right? So we've got, we have a vision. It's not just about chemistry this year. It's about this long-term, what's chemistry going to look like? We don't want to get caught up too much in one specific school that we're offering chemistry to. Right. Then you've got another school that's like, hey, we have a semester model. Is the semester model something that long-term we're going to push? I mean, most schools are not using it, so probably not. But if there's 23 kids in that room, then we're going to make sure that it works as best as possible for them this year. Right. Um, and that's just where you see that, like how much effort and how much impact is going to shift a little bit on that scale. So when, when you, you know, we're talking about this effort and impact, I think like you started out the conversation today saying like, you know, you've kind of fallen into this space probably because you're pedagogy based and you do the live session professional development. Um, you know, you're kind of doing professional development on the fly with teachers as, you know, they're knocking on your door in teams, um, which is a great way to communicate, by the way, I think. It could be it could be more well used even in face to face environments. But um, talk a little bit about you know as you kind of hear from teachers and you hear from districts like there's this collision of need and and like 
and what the teacher is doing in the room. Like, so there's both, you have to kind of satisfy both, which is different than when you're a teacher in a classroom. Now you are advocating for your teacher and your student at the same time. Yeah. Which is maybe what we should all be doing, but it is interesting to try to balance like our teacher's um, role as the professional. And in some ways, the fact that we're virtual, the fact that our classes are recorded and the fact that there's another person in the room, another adult, often another professional educator, means that our teachers are getting in some ways informally observed like three times over. You know right. what I mean? Like there's the kids that are always there. Right. There's the recording, which is this, impersonal but very real tangible observation that's held throughout all time right? right I mean we protect those recordings as far as who can access them but from the teacher's perspective like they are being recorded they are recording themselves and then there's this other adult that's in the room um again who was probably a professional educator who probably has opinions about education one interesting thing that's come out with at least two teachers in the past week or so is people who are non-language professionals but care about their students a lot having some questions around the pedagogy and the pedagogy as we know in language education has shifted pretty significantly right. and the, what the best practices are in the past, starting in the seventies, but like really just in the past few decades and it's still shifting, you know, when you get together with a bunch of language educators, like we're going to in November in Boston at Actful, there's whole strains of, you know, people are still trying to figure this out, but there's this big shift towards using the target language in the classroom and basically doing less grammar instruction. And that's not how most of us growing up taking classes 20, 30, 40 years ago learned right. language. And so um, sometimes people have questions about that, that pedagogy and that strategy. And so we are kind of in this position of like also educating people. I think it's a good thing, but educating people about language acquisition. And in the case of science and math, the same thing's going to happen, right? Because my colleague Aaron is working with the new standards um, for, for STEM education. And those standards are going to be something that's not going to be familiar to a generation of people that was educated a generation ago, right? Yeah. The yeah. 3D learning and all that kind of stuff, I think will come initially as like, hang on a second, this is the same science that, no, it's not the same science. Like it's not memorizing the periodic table. It's taking these storylines and applying your, and, and really education in general is shifting that way. It's not just yeah. those two spheres, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting because I think in some ways our teachers are a little bit more under the magnifying glass than um, oh, for other sure. teachers who might just close the door and like, you know, get observed twice a year by a principal or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that's yeah. such a good point. I mean, I really do think that's a good point. Um, and I think it also, um, you know, it gives them a comfort level then too, though, around, you know, confidence, you know, that, yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a certain level of confidence, especially after people have done it for a while, I think in your first year or your second year, even when you're doing it and somebody shows up, you still have that initial like freeze when somebody that's not one of your students comes into the class, you know, that you might not perceive as a friendly, um, you know, friendly face. So, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the things that you do too, though, in your support and advocacy for those teachers, though, is you give them that friendly face. And, and I think, you know, we're really aware because of that too. We're aware because we can go look at a recording if we get a complaint or, you know, somebody says, I don't really like the way this is happening. And we can say, oh, well, you know what, if you check the video out, 
Um, you'll see what's happening there. And, and here's the connections, you know, as an educator, I'll tell you how we connect the dots from what's happening, you know, in the live session to what they're practicing in their activities in the Canvas course. So I think that's like- well, a lot of our teachers are new teachers. So we're really kind of, even though we're not officially a district, we're kind of going through that induction experience of like, I mean, everybody knows, every. hopefully everybody remembers what it's like to be a first year teacher. And even if our teachers had in-person experience, they're often first year virtual teachers. Right. Um, so when you think about all that, like I think our teachers do really an incredible job. They're not in there daily with their kids. They can't look over their shoulders. They have this technology piece between them and the students. And yet like they're connecting, they're teaching and there's acquisition happening. Yeah, that's um, really cool. I mean, I think I love that you brought this kind of thing because I think when you think about high impact and I don't feel like there's a whole lot of stuff that we do is like low effort, low impact, you know, I mean. I feel like most of what we do has has some purpose to it. Um, you know, I feel like we mostly live up yeah. in that quadrant. But, you know, That's like fine. before we, uh, yeah, I mean, we could probably go on forever. But um, I think what you do for our teachers is really awesome. And I also think um, you advocate really well for um, making our courses better, um, you know, from the language we use to the resources that we put in there. And um, that just reminded me that, um, one of the people who we work with um, to help us with our courses is um, Cecilia Grugan, um, your sibling, and uh, she has a book out, you know, so she's helped us with our courses, and I'm pretty excited because I got to review the book. It's called Learn to Sign with Your Baby, and it's really a very, very cool um, resource, and I think it kind of lends itself to to what we're talking about you know, in that support, because I think that uh, the way that she frames this book, she's not allowing communication to happen by chance between a, a parent and a child. And I think that's a really interesting concept, you know, when you're very intentional about saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to use sign language because there's some real brain research, there's some real you know, neurological stuff that says a baby can communicate much earlier using sign language, using a visual language um, than they can verbally. And so that acquisition of language can happen um, earlier on. So, so for the folks who um, have students in our ASL classes, we have a number one selling author now or anybody who's a parent or knows a parent or knows a right. small child or, this is like yeah. highly recommend the book um i read it a couple months ago um when it was in the like the final edit stages and and uh it's just a paper copy that i have but i can't wait to get the nice um the, the glossy with the with the color pictures and um the, you know it's really awesome too because it also comes with um, a video so it has video to, to give you a visual as well. So it's not right. just that you get pictures, but you also get, it's all two dimensional, but it's still really great visuals of mm -hmm. um, how you do those signs and lots of activities and ideas um, for how to, how to make that conversation and that language learning or acquisition meaningful. So I'm super excited about that, that we're actually, um, that we've worked with, um, the aerials and the folks from the aerial series for the last two years um, to develop our ASL courses. And I think they are top notch. So that's right. if you want to know more about that, um, our ASL series, and I will also um, 
put the link in our show notes to um, Cecilia's book. Well, thanks for sharing that, Pat. I'm really excited um, for my sibling and their family and um, for on this topic of language usage, I'll just share with our listeners that Cecilia's pronouns are they, them, so that we can be um, respectful and accurate to that. But Cecilia has um, put a lot of effort, high impact, high effort. High impact, high effort, effort yeah. And you are ahead of the game, Pat, because I don't have a copy yet. Siblings apparently are not in that. Well, you know. Um, are not in that inner circle that you must be in. Well, but apparently I'm getting so. my copy, so. I'm very excited. I was very happy to read it. And, um, and I, I will definitely, this will be a gift to parent get any, any, um, any folks moving in the future who I need to get a gift for when they're having a baby, this is going to be it because I do believe that, um, breaking down those barriers in early learning is so important. This is, I think will be a book that lots of people are going to be using for years and years. And I'm sure she'll build on it. Um, you know, because I think acquiring, whatever your first language is, um, is, is kind of a doorstep into, you know, talk about opening the door. It's a door into, you know, not only, you know, if English is your first language, but how we acquire all of our language. It's so cool. Perry, my, my, uh, and Maya's child is, um, is the hearing child, but is ASL is their first language. And, um, Perry's, uh, a little over a year old and I can't count how many words they their vocabulary is so their like list is so long it's all you know all these signed words and they're like they're understandable I just got a video two days ago of Perry signing my name sign and so I was like yes I'm on the list the list is long and growing and I'm confident that my speaking uh child did not have that many words at that age so I think there is something to the ASL thing pretty cool pretty cool so Olivia thanks for um always joining me. It's always engaging and fun to talk with you. And uh, I look forward to doing more support and advocacy with you and our teachers and helping districts get what they need. So thanks again for joining me. And if you need world languages, if you need calculus or chemistry, we're here for you. Um, We're going to be expanding out to um, physics um, and we're building some awesome storyline courses. So uh, lots of new stuff coming out. We'll be talking about it in the podcast this year. And next week, we're going to be talking to um, Ann Myers, our Latin teacher, who has done some development with us using the storyline. So exciting stuff on season two, episode three. So that'll be out. Thank you, Pat. All right. Take care, everybody.